Um, Chad asked me if I was up for preaching a couple weeks ago, and I was very eager and willing, and he was particularly looking at March 8th, and just this week I found out that we were losing an hour, and I began to realize why he was eager about March 8th. So, so here I am, ready to preach for us, and, um, but I'm excited about this sermon series that we're in. Um, this season of Lent, uh, we're looking at different passages in Paul's epistles where there's this transition phrase, this, this transition, but now, or but God. And the way that Chad has kind of framed it is that when we look closely at this transition that happens in these passages, we begin to move from one state into a new state, one old reality into a new reality. And I know for many of us, even in our own lives, we feel this. There's certain times, certain historical events that happen in our lives or in, in our communities that transition, that change the way that we live. And this is the same exact thing that Paul is getting at for us with the gospel. And in particular, what's rooted at the but now or the but God is the work of Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so as we look together at this passage, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, you can read in our, our order of worship or in your Bible. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because, God lo because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I pray that you would be with the meditation of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth. And we trust that your word is our rock and our foundation. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, growing up, I loved family reunions. I loved them. And especially my dad's side, the old father's side. Um, we lived far away from our extended family, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, our grandparents. So oftentimes it was, it was a big adventure. We were getting to travel. We were going to go see our family. Um, the reunions were always loud and action-filled. All my cousins were actually on my dad's side. So as you can 
all the kids running around. We were a family of six. Uh, so a lot of activities, a lot of games, a lot of entertainment. Um, my grandfather had a cabin on this beautiful river, fish and tube on it. And the food was just delicious. It was barbecue and all the fixings and, and watermelon was always the dessert. Um, and as a kid, I loved these experiences. We, um, I loved connecting with our family, these cousins that we didn't get to see very often. But as time went on, I began to realize that my experience at these family reunions were often actually different than my parents' experience. Much of the time, things were, um, uh, my parents uh, did not share the same sort of childlike joy that I did with my cousins and my aunts and my uncles. Um, they had conflict or strife and, and just disagreements that happens over time, over 30, 40 years of, of being a part of a family. Um, and so much of the time, things would blow over, but the effects would still linger in their interactions and in their relationships. On the surface, everything seemed okay, and the kids were able to have fun and a good time, but underneath, there was lingering pain and, and bitterness. And I recently just was reminded of the intention for myself uh, that existed in my own relationships. Uh, with My cousin had gotten married a couple weeks ago, and I was able to reconnect with family that I hadn't seen for a few years. And in the midst of that happiness and the busyness of the wedding, um, I also felt disconnected from a few of them, and in particular one, because uh, there were things that were said or things that were left unsaid, and this just created a, a mutual distance between us. So, so much of this distance and disconnection that while talking with this family member, I was left with not a lot to say uh, to this person. And an uneasiness sat over our conversation as, as we were trying to make small talk and, and catch up. And I imagine that conflict in family or other significant relationships in your lives, co-workers, employees, um, friends, for many of us is not foreign. This is not foreign territory. And in many ways, it, it provokes an uneasiness with us because we know that something's off, something's wrong. And sometimes the best way to deal with it is just to put on a nice face and just to be cordial. Try not to rock the boat. I'm a big fan of not rocking the boat myself. Um, but underneath the surface, there's not really peace. There's only this disconnection, this distance, this strife or conflict, pain, hurt, and bitterness of time. Family dynamics are not easy. And often it's within families that we experience the deepest relational pain, the deepest pains of our lives. And yet, the crazy thing about Scripture is that a majority of Scripture is about messy and broken families and relationships and, and being renewed and, and this sense of peace. So whether it's the messy story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or whether or not it's the broken relationships that King David had with his sons, God does not actually shy away from these broken places in our lives and in our relationships. The story of redemption and salvation is filled with God entering into these messy families, these messy relationships, these messy friendships, these places of brokenness and strife. God is coming to rescue us and bring us home, his children. 
But before we can imagine what it looks like to actually enter into these places with our families, with our friends, with our loved ones, we have to think about what is the ground that we can stand on? Is there any ground? Anything we can be secure in when we enter into these places? And how is it that we find that? And, and Paul, for us, I think, gives us a roadmap in many ways. He gives us a picture of what it meant for us to find peace with him, or vice versa, what it meant for God to restore peace to us. So how is it that our peace with God now shapes and informs how we seek peace and reconciliation with others? Is it possible that now we can live differently because of this new reality, because of this reconciliation we have with God? So this morning, as we look at this passage, I, I just want us to look at two things. First, I want us to see that the assurance of peace with God is lasting. The assurance of peace with God is lasting. And secondly, out of this peace with God, there's a real hope. There's a real hope for real and meaningful reconciliation with others. There's a hope for real and meaningful reconciliation with others. So as we think about this, this, this first part, this, this uh, lasting peace with God, the assurance that we actually have this peace, um, Paul has been making this big argument in Romans about what does it mean to be made right with God. We are sinful, we're broken, something's wrong, we can't do it on our own. So what is it that God has done this, that God is making us right? And how is it that we come into this relationship? And he hearkens back in chapter 4 to, the, to Abraham. And he says, Abraham was the father of faith. Abraham was the father of faith. All the promises that Abraham received was not because in some works that he was doing, but because he punted, put his faith in his God, his God would accomplish. So receiving these saving promises, Paul's trying to make the argument, it's the same thing that he did for Abraham, is the same thing for us. The saving promises, this peace that we can have with God comes by faith, comes by faith. He says not only faith, but also this faith brings a lasting grace, something that we can stand on. This is a grace that we can enter into and stand on, not because of something we're bringing to the table, but because of our faith in God. So Paul is basically telling us that from the very beginning, God's plan of salvation and restoration of all things comes through faith, comes through faith. Not only that, but peace with God brings us access to him. We no longer have to stand at a distance from him or try to hide ourselves as Adam and Eve did. Rather, it says that we stand before God in his grace. There's a restored relationship that has brought here. But I think that there's an uneasiness that can often come is what does it mean is this really true? Is this really possible? Is this really lasting? Because I know myself and I know that I'm one to mess up. Is this, uh, peace to me is a weird feeling. It, it often seems elusive. Peace seems elusive. What does it mean to be at peace? Is it some sort of surreal or calm feeling? Is it an absence of conflict or, or strife? And I think that things are what peace is about. But in the Bible, in Scripture, it, it often talks about peace as what they call shalom. And it's pointing to something 
deeper than just a subjective feeling. It's pointing to a reality that things are being made whole. Peace is talking about wholeness of well-being, of flourishing. So for Paul here, when he talks about being at peace with God, he's not just talking about that you're going to have this inner feeling and you're going to feel good about it. That does exist. But Paul is wanting to tell us that this peace with God, even if you don't feel it, it is actually there. It is actually real. It was accomplished through Christ in, the, in his death and in his resurrection. So as we think about this peace, is it possible to have peace with God? when I fail or mess up in my life, we have to ask ourselves, what is the ground? Because we, we know we will mess up. And sometimes our, our sin and our brokenness and our habits actually creates less peace in our lives. And yet God wants to give us a ground that we can stand on, an assurance that this peace is real, that this peace is lasting. We find this assurance of peace in God flipping everything upside down. We find that God breaks radically into our lives and into the world around us in order to restore this peace. And this is where the transition happens. This is where that but now or but God transition happens. In verse 8, we see, we find that the but transition challenges the way the world and we typically do business, the way that we typically seek to find peace. For us, finding peace usually means we're trying to run away from suffering or run away from pain, avoid broken relationships altogether. Why bother when it seems like it will only cause more trouble than what it's worth? Paul here gives us a sense of tension in our normal experience and motivation compared to God's motivation and God's reality. So he, gives it, he, he sets up these two different realities. And he talks about one would scarcely die for a righteous person. That's somebody who's morally upright. I'm sure you can think of folks in your lives who it's like, man, that is a good person. Or somebody who's done good things in their life. Somebody who you can look up to. And yet Paul says that that sort of person, we would not, I meant maybe we would die for that sort of person. Maybe we could value their life more than ours. I, I think maybe a better way of getting into this, though, is we can think of loved ones, maybe a parent sacrificing their own life for their child, for somebody that you love and somebody that you care for. But this but transition changes everything. Um, we see that God died for us even though we were not good, even though we were not righteous. So maybe a way to at this, an example is um, uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure some of you have seen that or, or know the story. It's an account um, of a squad of U.S. soldiers in World War II. Um, they had just landed on the beaches of Normandy, and they were tasked with a mission, and their mission was to go rescue one man, one man. This man had lost all of his brothers, uh, and the purpose of rescuing this man was to restore him to his parent, to restore him, I think, to his mother. So she would not lose all of her sons. So here it is. They're sending a squad of men out to save one man, a squad of men to put their own life to save another. And the whole tension of the movie is this conversation that they're having. 
why are we going to save this one man? At the end, after, every, after the dust has settled, um, the captain of the squad is dying. And he pulls the young man over and he says, earn it, earn it. As you can imagine, this captain is hoping that his death and the death of his other men was not in vain, was not in vain. I, I give that image because that's actually not what Paul is talking about here. Paul doesn't say, I died for you to earn it. We see God dying for those who were sinful. God flips everything upside down. In the passage, three times it says, while you were blank, God did this. Three times it goes, while you were weak, Christ died for you. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were an enemy, God reconciled you to himself by the death of Christ. So Paul there is not mincing words. Paul's not saying that we're just weak people who just need a little bit of help in order to, to find peace. He's not even saying that we're people who have done some bad things in our lives. He's saying that our relationship with God the God who came to die for us, he came to die for enemies. He came to die for people who were hostile to him and his purposes. As I was reflecting on this, I was trying to think to myself, I don't even know if I have any enemies. What would an enemy look like? And then I thought of Cardinals fans. So, <laughs> so sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm a Cardinals fan, so. Um, it, it, just something about the red, just, you know, it, it just, it gets me, it gets me. But no, no, Cardinals fans are not even my enemies. Um, and yet, in this case, an enemy is someone who actively opposes, actively harms, treats others with hostility. And yet, it is this relationship that we have with God, and it is this God who died for his enemies, died for his enemies. The fruit of all this is we were brought into life. We, we are renewed. We are we have a relationship with him, and it leads us to joy. It leads us to rejoicing. It leads us to boasting in what he has done, and that is good news for us, and it, it motivates the way that we shape our life together as a people. So as we reflect on this, we see that our peace doesn't rest on what we're bringing to the table, because if that were the case, we're not bringing peace. We're actually bringing hostility bringing brokenness. The peace that we rest in is the work that God has done for us. But I think as we transition now, a question for us to ask is, is that good enough for our own relationships with one another? Is that peace, is that assurance strong enough to actually help us enter into broken relationships? Is God able to reconcile, if God is able to reconcile his own enemies to himself, how much more can he do that with one another, with us, our neighbors, with our families and communities? So we think about this hope of meaningful reconciliation with others, this hope. Now, before I, I move forward, I, I want to say one thing. All of us here know broken relationships. We know fractured marriages, we know fractured families, our conflicts with our employers, 
our peers, our neighbors in this neighborhood. You just listen to the, the news and the political rhetoric and it's divisive and it tears people apart. You name a relationship, big or small, and at some level there are cracks and fractures that lay underneath the surface, lay underneath the surface. And to imagine entering into this, quite frankly, is scary and it's painful. And if it was just left up to you and me, it would be impossible. So I recognize that for many of us in this room, there's deep betrayal and there's hurt. And you can probably think of one or two folks in your life, you, it would be hard to imagine what it would look like. And yet, Paul, in this but God transition, is actually inviting us to imagine what it would look like, what it would look like. So as we think about this, I just want to reiterate some of the things I already brought up as we think about this in our own relationships. When we start to imagine and enter into this reconciliation, seeking out those who we are in conflict with, we begin to see God working in us and in the lives of those around us. So I have five very short things I just wanted us to consider. Five very short ones. I'll be very brief. One, there's no room for judgment or condemnation in reconciliation. In John 3, 17, as we heard read, God came to the world. God sent his son into the world. He did not come to judge it. He came to save it. So if we are to model that for ourselves, we are not to be those to judge or condemn. And in light of those very challenging and hard relationships, it is very easy for us to judge and condemn. It is very easy for us to judge and condemn. Jesus in the parable of the unforgiving servant even challenges us on that. Where is your heart? You who have been forgiven so much, can you forgive another? Now with that said though, this, this goes into the second brief point. Speaking honestly without ignoring or forgetting the past. We're not called to judge or condemn, but we're also called to be honest with the things that have happened in our relationships, in this brokenness. The work of real and meaningful reconciliation means that we do not have to hide from the truth, even when it is painful or shameful. Paul, again in our passage, he did not hide from the truth. He did not mince words. He described us as weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies. Paul kind of punches you in the face in there. And yet, we're allowed to enter into that. We're allowed to speak truthful without condemnation or judgment. Third, we're, this sort of reconciliation requires a sacrificial posture. A sacrificial posture. If God is the one, three times, it describes us as weak, sinful, and and each three times, God shows his love through sacrifice. God th shows his love through sacrifice. And I imagine for you and for me, thinking about entering into some of these more challenging and broken relationships would require giving up a lot. It requires giving up vulnerability. It requires us to be vulnerable, I guess is a better way of saying it. It requires us to put down our guards so that we can actually enter into this. 
It requires us to not wait on the person in order to see change in that person. It actually requires us to move towards that person. It requires us to put down our humility or our pride and put on our humility. Fourth, this same power that Paul has described that has brought us to peace with him, is it not the same power that God can do for someone else? That person, that enemy, that person who has hurt you badly, can God not work in their life? Also, is God not working in their life? Paul and I would say yes, yes. As he is working in ours, he is working in theirs. And as we enter into this, we begin to see maybe ways in which God is doing that. And then lastly, this last point here, we cannot do this on our own. This is not go out there and try to make this work. We actually need support. God promises to be with us by his grace. He promises to give us a peace that far surpasses understanding, to give us a joy even in the midst of brokenness. And we also have a community. We are a reconciled people. We are a people who God has restored to himself. And so we get to come together and model this for one another in our lives. We get to support each other and hold each other up. A pastor, a counselor, a trusted friend, someone who you can open your heart to and bear these burdens to. So as we think about these things, as, as we conclude here, our time. The but God transition in our passage this morning invites us to see a God who goes to extreme lakes to seek peace and restoration with his children. But not only that, the but God phrase here in Romans 5 invites us to see a whole new order, a whole new way of doing life together, a whole new way of doing life together a people who seek to forgive one another, a people who seek to see God at work in very challenging and hard relationships in our lives, to enter into it. Here we find God's mission to reconcile all things to himself in Christ Jesus is the very inbreaking of God's kingdom. The work of this kingdom is to transform God's new creation here on earth. This is active work. This is, this is something that we get to be a part of now. The God of peacemaking and reconciliation invites us into this work of the kingdom. When we begin to see reconciliation in our life, when we begin to see forgiveness being shown and given to us, we begin to see the kingdom of God at work here and now. We do not have to wait for Christ to return in order to be reconciled with one another now. To say this another way, reconciliation is not an optional part of our lives if we are followers of Christ. As we seek peace and reconciliation with our neighbors, we bear witness to the world that something has changed, that but now God has done something. And that something is God has shown his love towards us in the death of Christ. This task of reconciliation we do not do alone as we learn to model confession and forgiveness and costly peacemaking in our lives that are marked by joy, we proclaim a vision of hope and renewal to a broken world. And in the midst of our suffering, we come to know a hope 
that, is, that will not put us to shame, a hope that will not let us down. In the midst of our broken and shattered relationships, we come to know not only the depth of pain and suffering, but we come to the sweetness of reconciliation, the sweetness of renewal by the power of God's love demonstrated towards us and in the lives of others. As we practice peace and reconciliation in our relationships, including our families, including those relationships that hurt the most, we come to know and experience the love of God, which has been poured into our hearts. Again, it's, it's a circle. It's, it's a reminder of the peace that we have with God. As we begin to demonstrate this with others, we begin to see how God is working it in our own life. And so I end with this. We can rejoice. We can rejoice knowing that God has given this task of peacemaking and reconciliation to a bunch of weak people, to a bunch of ungodly people, to a bunch of sinners, to enemies. And that is part of the gospel, that God has restored that, these sort of people, you and me, so that we could seek restoration with others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 5, and both the great joy and delight that it brings us, but also the challenge. Lord, I pray with all of us here that we would continue to rest in your, our peace with you, knowing your grace and the depth of your love for us, and that we may model this in our families, in our relationships with our friends, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our city. We pray this in your name. Amen.
You may be seated. Well, we gather as God's people, and God has given us His Word, but also set this table before us that we can come and be nourished by His work for us. Pastor Eric led us through a moments that invites us to see our reality that we are weak, that we are sinners, and also to see and hear again the good news that why we were in our weakness and sin, Christ died for us. This table is a clear image of that truth, that you and I, sinners, you and I, hungry 